I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 112. Today on the show, we're joined by Eddie Claypool, a freelance outdoor writer and super successful whitetail bow hunter. And our topic is going to be DIY public and private land whitetail strategies. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today, I'm joined by Eddie Claypool, a longtime freelance outdoor writer and contributor to Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine and one of the most successful DIY and public land bow hunters in the country. He is an avid whitetail hunter and a guy who knows how to get it done on wily old bucks in tough conditions. And that's exactly what we're going to chat with Eddie about today. In the next hour or two, my goal is that we can get an inside look into how Eddie is able to have such great success across the country chasing mature bucks all on his own and on a reasonable budget. And I want to do this because I know there are a lot of people out there, maybe you, who want to go on that dream whitetail trip, but you're not exactly sure how to pull it off or if you can afford it, or where you should even start when trying to plan it. So that's what we're going to try to talk about today. Hardcore DIY private or public land tactics that can help you pull off the whitetail hunt of your dreams, whether that's 15 miles from home or 1,500. But before we do that, we need to pause briefly to thank our friends at Sitka Gear for the support of this podcast. And as has been the case for the past few weeks, I'm recording again at their headquarters here in Bozeman, Montana. And in a couple days, the Hunting Film Tour is going to be launching their 2016 tour here in town. And one of the films that I believe is going to be on that tour is called Beyond the Roar. And it features actually a past podcast guest of ours, Aaron Hitchens. You might remember that episode last year, I think. Now, over the past few months, as you likely know, we've been sharing short Sitka stories here featuring different hunters and their interesting or exciting experiences that have taken place while wearing Sitka clothing. Well, Beyond the Roar, the film, is without a doubt interesting and exciting and remarkably profound, and it's also a Sitka story. So 
Rather than regale you with that story here, I just encourage you to check out that film, which you can view online when you get a chance. It follows Aaron and his friend Will as they embark on a wilderness moose hunt in the Yukon by way of canoe as they seek out adventure and a way to honor their recently passed friend. We just posted the video over on wiredtohunt.com, so head there and check it out. Beyond the Roar is very well done and very much a Sitka story. So, with that said, let's now get back to the show and give Eddie a call. All right, with us now on the line is Eddie Claypool. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm very excited to finally chat with you. You know, like I just mentioned off the air, I've been reading your articles for a long time now, and uh, I've definitely learned a lot myself. So I'm excited for you to be able to share some of your experiences and um, some of the things that you've been able to do over the years to have so, so much success. I'm excited for you to share that with our audience. Um, so, you know, before I dive too far into that, I'm going to be kind of eager. I want to pick your brain about a lot of things, though. But before we get to that, yeah. Eddie... Could you tell us just a little bit about uh, about your background, how you got to this point as you know such a successful outdoor writer? Well, you know, I don't know how successful an outdoor writer I am, but I I do take pride in being a, a, a very you know hardcore do-it-yourself bow hunter. That that um, started as a teenager, and I've just played it through all my life. I have never really been interested in. Uh, going on guided hunts, uh, I would rather fail on my own than succeed with help, I guess. You could say I'm kind of hard-headed old cuss, uh, <laughs> been an independent fella. And so, you know, you, when you climb the ladder of hard knocks all on your own, you learn things the right way and you eliminate the, the you know, the inferior stuff. And for the past 30, 40 years, I've just been... You know, I started out whitetail hunting and progressed into western hunting and uh, even have taken, you know, whitetail hunting out west quite a bit, too. I, I hunt a very large percentage of my stuff on public land, but, I mean, on whitetail hunting, I have traveled all around uh, the country just, you know, knocking on doors and gaining permission to hunt on pub, uh, private land, too. So I, I just am take pride in being well-rounded in what I do, and I do it like the average guy. I was not born into privilege or money or didn't have a grandpa with a big amount of land. I've just kind of been a construction worker all my life, which did give me an occupation that allowed me to take off more time than the average guy. So the one ingredient I have supplied for the many years is time, and I insisted upon it one way or the other. I made it part of my life, and uh, usually... You know, in the fall of the year, I'm never working and just bow hunt seriously. And I'm not ashamed to load a pickup up and drive to a state I've never been and start ferreting out some stuff. And uh, it's led to, you know, a lot of good types of, you know, habitat that I've learned to hunt and, and a lot of good, you know, getting away from the maddening crowd type hunts, too. Uh, it's getting to be tough nowadays because of the, you know, mass commercialization of the hunting industry here in the last 10 or 20 years things are getting a lot tougher than the way i come up but it can still be done and i still have good success by just going around and hunting either public land or private land that i access usually through a handshake and hard work 
Now, you said you started whitetail hunting and then moved to, to try some different things out west and different species and whatnot. Yeah. How does whitetail hunting stack up with all the other big game you've hunted now? Is it still Does it still have that special appeal? You know, it, whitetail hunting has been my main squeeze all my life, but I also am kind of a closet western guy to the point of I've had a hard time differentiating between which of the two is more important to me because... They each have their own appeal. Uh, Whitetail has been my main squeeze because I grew up around them. I cut my teeth on them, and I've always had a special place in my heart for them. But I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, you know, I know I'm probably a minority nowadays. Uh, You know, everything's turning into a kind of a, it seems like the whitetail world has become a, a money sort of deal where you either have to have land that you bought or, uh, leased or something. And, you know, I just don't fit into that world anymore. Um, it's been hard on me the last half dozen years. I've lost access to most all my good places and have had to really dig and scrap to stay in the game. And I've went out west to the big public lands out there to try to hunt whitetails to get away from the, uh, you know, the what's going on back here in the Midwest with this mass commercialization stuff. But Whitetails have lost a little bit of their appeal to me over the last half dozen years due to the fact of just what simply is going on in the industry itself. It's turned me off. It's uh, lessened the average guy's ability to hunt at a high level. It's um, anymore. It's become more of a dog-eat-dog, competitive, money-minded industry. And uh, I come from a different place in time, and that's just kind of turned me off a little bit on whitetails recently but it sounds like you're still you're still able to have some success would you say that the average guy or girl still can get it done without having the big money and the big property and all that oh it's absolutely doable it's just way harder than it used to be i mean you know in my heyday you could drive to any of the premium whitetail states you know ohio indiana illinois uh, kansas when it opened and access just virtually anything the farmers were open they wanted their deer killed and they wanted decent people on their property and you know even though it's evolved now into more of a money thing it's still very available i um, i travel a lot now and, and just rather than mess with the headache of trying to get on private property anymore which is almost undoable in the quality states i either go to the lesser you know, highlighted states or just hunt public land. And uh, I've had good success the last few years on public land. Uh, and some of my friends have had even astronomically better success because they're not as much of a wild goose chaser as I am. They'll, they'll <laughs> stay right there at home <laughs> and work on a good commodity at their fingertips while I'm out running around like a, a nut somewhere looking for a pot at the end of a rainbow. They'll, they'll stay home and hunt their little... Honey holes, and you know there's a lot to be said for that because, really, that's the way the average guy hunts. He doesn't get to travel all over a lot, and you know, if you really learn how to ferret out, you know, how to beat the system on the public lands, you can, uh, you will soon find out that 90% of the guys that hunt them, um, really, uh, forgive me, but they're not really dangerous per se, uh, and if you can beat that the way they're doing it and get into that 10 percentile that does it differently on public land you can usually uh usually come out with a a real good uh taxidermy bill (laughs) (laughs) 
that's always a nice problem to have when there's a big taxidermy bill, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. So, so for a little context here, where all uh-huh. have you hunted whitetails at? What states? Well, if I had to spread it out as wide as I could to give you an overview, I mean, it, the farthest east I've hunted them is New York State, farthest north, Alberta, Canada, farthest west, um, basically the Washington, Idaho line, and the farthest south, if you include the cow's deer, the desert whitetails, I've hunted them to the Mexico line. So just about most of our geographic country I've traveled through and you know, in just an old Ford truck and uh, ice chest and a camper on back. And I've driven a many a thousand a mile of back roads knocking on doors. So I've hunted them. I've been blessed to get to do more than most people because I've had the time for 30 years. I've just taken the fall of the year off every year and went, you know, through these cycles of going to different areas. And I've been blessed to hunt so many different types of habitat from, from mountainous, big woods, northern whitetails, to urban whitetails, to farmland whitetails, to high plains, to desert whitetails. So I, I like them all. Every, every type of habitat has its own challenges, and I'm bad about liking new challenges. When I get something kind of going my way, it's usually not long until I start looking somewhere else for something to tackle. Um I'm not just satisfied in mastering something and setting on it and, you know, bilking the good out of it forever. I like to try to match wits with something that might get the best of me, you know. Mm-hmm. Sounds like uh, we, we share the same disease. I, I definitely have found uh, right. that I can't seem to, yeah. I don't get too comfortable. Once I get comfortable, I kind of want to move on and try new things, new states, new That's areas. It. There is a certain appeal to that new adventure kind of that you, you never know what's around the next yeah. corner and trying to figure yeah. it all out. So, right. And it, it keeps you at your edge too. You're on your edge, you know, it makes you, uh, makes you stay hopping. Uh, you know, I have friends that have some premium properties out in Iowa and, you know, Illinois type managed type properties, we might call them. And I've watched them, you know, settle into those little places. And over a period of years, you know, they get everything groomed and they get the big bucks grown and they got the tree stands all placed and over a period of time it's kind of almost becomes like a I don't know a staged act or something I mean they got the deer name they know how old they are they they won't shoot them until they're so many years old and they got their tree stands they know every single spot they're going to get every day pre-rehearsed you know and to me that I, I got close to that a couple of times because you have to you have to mature through stages, and you need to taste those stages to really know what you think of them. And I attempted some of that and realized that it wasn't really for me. I don't. I don't I'd rather go try somewhere new and hunt an unknown and kill a 125 inch deer, maybe even off public land somewhere, because the challenge is so much greater. And I, I hunt for the challenge, not just the large antlers. I I, I love large antlers. And I, I've got enough of them that I got to kind of, I guess, mature to mature through the stage of just being, you know, focused on acquiring big antlers. And so, like you, I like the challenge of new places and new hunts. And so, I don't even really fantasize anymore about owning this premium piece of Iowa or Illinois property that I could homestead for 20 years because it wouldn't be long. I'd be looking to sell it and <laughs> try something different. <laughs> 
So, so this is perfect because I think this is exactly what I want us to try to focus on. It's for that, for that listener that doesn't have a big property. They don't have a family member who's got the big farm, but they still want to chase this idea. They want to chase this idea of, of, you know, a mature buck or traveling to hunt one of these other places. And you obviously have just, you know, shared with us the fact that you've been able to do this successfully all over the country, you know, from north to south, east to west on a budget. So I really want to all dig right. into how you're able to do that. And I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but I think a good way to do that might be to actually reference something I read in one of your articles a while back. You'd written yes. about right. how you like to break down how you hunt mature whitetail bucks. And you break it down into four categories right. for the DIY right. guy or girl. First, you talked about right. you need to figure out where you hunt. Then you need to talk about when you hunt. Then it's finding uh-huh. the exact location. And then finally, sealing the deal. So I kind of want to walk through each of those four yeah. steps to understand your process. Uh, does, okay. that sound like, does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, that sounds fine with me. I uh, just jog my memory on each one of them in order, and I'll I'll address them a little bit. Yeah. So so where you hunt, obviously, is that first question. You know, for yeah. a lot of people, maybe who right. live on the East Coast or you know for, right. one of these non-famous deer areas, they have these dreams of right. going out there and hunting there, but they might think it's impossible or super expensive. Yeah. So I guess I'm curious. Right. First, how do you go about deciding? where to hunt from a region standpoint or, or just beginning that process? How do you go through that, uh, through that whole situation, right. figuring out where and how you're going to go somewhere? Well, I think mainly it boils down to that's a very individual and very personal, you know, topic for each hunter. It depends on what your priorities are. I mean, we all know where the, the main genetics are, for the biggest bucks, the biggest antlered ones. And, you know, if that's all you're after, then, you know, you know the direction to go there. You know about, you know, which places to go and you know you're probably going to have to either go outfitted or have a silver spoon to get into those type of hunts i don't even think about them i don't even mess with them anymore um my priority being uh quality outing uh reasonable mature buck you know and that is basically real realism to the average big joe and you don't have to travel to the most elite places to do that most any state virtually any whitetail state has some good quality deer in it somewhere i live in oklahoma and we're not known for big deer at all um even though the state does kick a few out there like pink elephants it just doesn't happen it's a rarity instead of a you know uh normal thing and yet you know here i have traveled around my home state and found places uh, my my closest friend uh he stayed local here last year and hunted on a piece of public land here in the state and killed a 158-inch class 10-point buck, which is beating the system. Uh, I, myself, you know, I can find what I'm looking for in any state, basically. I have driven east, you know, which is not considered kosher if you're looking for good deer. But when I went to New York that time, I hunted some ground up there that, you know, I had a chance to kill a 150-class buck up there, which I know that's an exception to the rule in the Northeast. But wow. anywhere you go, it's just a matter of what your priority is. If it's large antlers, you know, enough said about that. You know where you got to go and what you got to do. If you're uh, looking for a good hunt, the Midwestern states and the Western states are still very available as far as plenty of public land and plenty of uh the game and fish departments have a lot of what they call walk-in type hunting areas in these states. 
And if you're willing to go out west, which is, you know, a far stretch for most people, there's unlimited public land out there, unlimited. You couldn't touch it in a lifetime. And it, lots of it has quality whitetail hunting. Uh, it's not like your average eastern type hunt, but it is certainly, you know, a quality experience because of the habitat, the environment, and the lack of people, generally speaking. And so, to me, I, that's a priority for me. I've always been a wilderness-type fanatic. Um, I do not like, you know, fighting with people over a hunting resource. And a lot of times I'll hunt an area that won't have as many deer or as good a deer just to have a quality outing. So, you know, where I go or where you go, that's a personal thing. Um, you know, I could go ramble on a list of countless spots that I have hunted that are good. Um, but every one of them to me didn't outweigh the other one in any facet. Uh, some of them were bigger buck places. Some of them were better, you know, overall hunting experiences, but I can't tell you, you know, if I would suggest anywhere other than just pick a state close to you. If not, if you're not going to, if you're looking to travel and if you're at home, you already know what you're dealing with, but if you're wanting to go out of state, as I have so much over my life, just pick any of the common sense states that have whitetails. And then if you do your homework, ferret out, you know, the hidden public places in all states have numerous low-profile hidden public lands. Um, I have hunted some little old patches of public in Kansas and different states that were 60, 80 acres, little spots that don't even show up on the radar and taking good bucks off them with very little people around. Uh, so, you know, where, if we address the topic of where, that's just a total personal preference because you can hunt them in, a, in any type of habitat from the northwest of the United States to the east to the south to the north. Just, um, I just leave that to each individual and make his own decisions on where he wants to go because other than going to Iowa or some of these premium spots and, you know, where the outfitting and everything is so prevalent, where they grow the big deer, other than those which go without saying uh, and going on a guided hunt, if you're the average Joe, just whatever tickles your fancy is my description of where to go. So so let's say then I pick a state. I've just got a uh -huh. fancy for state. We'll just say state X. I don't know what state it is, but I picked a state. Right, right, now now right. we need to figure out, okay, where are these hidden gems? Where are these pieces right. of public that will provide a quality experience? However right. much you're willing to divulge, how do how does someone go about yeah. finding those places? You know, When they're back home, let's say yeah. I'm, I'm eight hours away, what can I learn from home to help me point myself in the right place in that state far, far away? Well, I tell you, there's almost an endless amount of avenues a guy can pursue on that. Uh, Game and Fish is a starting place, you know, to see what they have shown on their hunting atlases and on their walk-in programs. And, you know, every state has numerous, countless names for the different types of land they have accessible. Some of it will be public. Some of it will be private. You know, they have, you know, access, yes, programs and whatever you want to call them for pub private land hunting. So you got to dig through the game and fish and dig deep. I mean, you got to go through each link and to the next link and look, and you'll find uh, what you can find. Then, you know, a lot of times, a lot of the ones I've found that are off the map are little old pockets that are, 
you know, uh, county park type things or around impoundments. Uh, there will be little public areas that don't show up on game and fish radar. They're more of a local level thing. Uh, you got to dig deep. Uh, you know, sometimes I haven't found my gems until I actually got into an area and actually started physically hunting it. I didn't even know they were there pre pre trip. Um, you know, it's a lot to be said for being local. We know how the locals all know their grounds like the back of their hand. But, you know, if you pick a good area and go there and become semi-local to it over a period of time, you're, you're going to find some hidden gems that will be there. So there's always that unforeseen blessing that you'll get from picking an area and going there for a year. Um, and I'm the world's worst about, you know, spending maybe three trips in a year to go to a spot. I'll usually go in the dead of winter, uh, take a long weekend and take two or three to four days and travel to a spot and camp in it in the winter and learn it, scout it, do my reconnaissance. Uh, it's invaluable if you've already got a piece of dirt to hunt on to go and look at it in the dead of winter for the scouting, you know, it's so great that time of year, all the rut sign is there, the people are gone and you can really do some power scouting in the winter but you also just get familiar with the people, the country, and you'll start picking up these little hidden gems that'll be there. You know, people talk, and all this stuff is, you know, the locals guard it pretty carefully, usually, and unless you're there and giving yourself a chance to, you know, to be in the frying pan, you may not be able to research it ahead of time. There are plenty of places to research, and, you know, you may need to pick a larger, more higher-profile area from, you know, off the internet or game and fish or local uh, websites and go and start it and then you can get into finding these other little spots of your own and there's always landowners there's always some there's always a few left here or there that will let you hunt i've never been anywhere i don't care how taken up it is with commercialization there's still some landowners that will let you hunt so overall it ain't rocket science you know it's just a matter of you know, you've got to pick a spot and say, well, I'm going to give this a couple of years. And, you know, I've, I've been through about four cycles, maybe five cycles in my whitetail hunting lifetime of picking areas, going to them, trying to homestead them for a given amount of time and losing them eventually. And every time, bar none, it's been to the commercialization of the sport that's run me out of it. I mean, you go there know knock on doors and have open hunting opportunities and end up uh, somehow or another the cancer of money hunting shows up and you know you go down the road five six years later but you just got to stay ahead of it a little bit move to another state that's not getting as much attention uh, you know in the past half dozen to ten years the main focus states of Iowa Illinois Kansas and stuff like that there just isn't a whole lot left there on private property to access for the average guy. I live right beside Kansas, right beside it, and have spent over 20 years in it. And I don't have a single private land place left in that state town. It's that bad. And so, you know, I'm just pretty well delegated to hunting little nuggets of public here and there. But I've been able to take, you know, bucks that will go, you know, 125 to 35 inches off of those places pretty well every year and uh, there are bigger so you know it's just a matter of doing research get on google earth and uh, you know get plat books call counties buy plat books i have a stack of plat books that's ridiculous 
some people may consider them old-fashioned, but, you know, they certainly give you land ownership of every bit of the county, show you the road systems and different things. It's just mass research and uh, been putting a, putting a warm body in that spot for a year or two and uh, doing the footwork and the legwork and the driving. And, you know, if you, within, you know, a year, you get a strong feeling you're wasting your time in a spot, which I have done. I went to a spot last year, spent a month in it, and just walked away from it. So this is a waste of time and time to cut my losses and go to plan B. But you'll win some, you'll lose some. But overall, if you do the work, it's like anything else in life. If you spend the time and do the work, you will reap the benefits, you know. So on these trips where you're you're traveling out there, to this new area, um, from what I've heard from you, it sounds like most of the time, or maybe all the time, you're camping out there. And I imagine that's a big part of how you can do this on a relative, right. uh, relatively small budget, I'm assuming. Um, yeah. Is that true? Is that something you do to, to make these trips more feasible? And if so, you know, how do you go, go about pulling that off? What are the logistics of, yeah. your, of your mobile camp? Right. Well, you know, I usually try to start on an area in the – like I said, like if I'm going to move somewhere and, and explore a new state or a new area, I'll do it. I'll try to start it off in the late winter, and I'll go there. And, I, yeah, I usually just camp out on those little short trips for a few days. I'll, you know, use my – I have a lot of gear from being a Western hunter, you know, good bags and tents and you name it. Or Now I've actually, at my age now, migrated up to a little pickup or a towable camper but I lived out of pickup shell campers for many years. And, you know, it's rough. I'm not going to lie to you. If you ain't got the wherewithal to tough it out some, then you probably ain't going to get this whole picture painted anyway. If you're not mentally tough and physically tough, you probably won't paint a good do-it-yourself whitetail picture. So that's a warning right up front. If you're scared of camping out and, you know, putting up with a little bit, uh, God forgive me, but I just basically say, you know, go play golf or something, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, yeah, I camp out a lot. And then by the time that I have decided whether the place is going to get an entire season of my attention or not, um, I usually, by then, I will take my, you know, trailer with me and stay in it. Or if it's not logistically sensible, I have actually rented a room in a place, you know, rent a room for a month, uh, there's places to be found, and, you know, sometimes even if you have to get a motel room, if you'll rent by the month and have a hunting buddy with you, you can get very budgeted on, on things. So when it comes down to that month in November, you know, a lot of times I try to set myself up a little bit better than camped out if I can, though I have had to camp out in a lot of really remote, rugged places. But um, I don't always camp out. I, I like being able to get up in a warm room, put my clothes on, and have a shower, you know, and different things. But um, I just go with the flow. Um, I just try to tackle each thing as I face it. And I live out of my truck most of the time, even if I'm not camping out. I don't go eat out at two or three times every day and things. And um, I'm a very, you know, low, uh, low overhead guy. So, all right, let's say we're, we're there now. We've picked a state, we've picked an area, we're going to camp out right. for a week or a couple weeks or something like that. How do you start that process on a new property? You've done some digital yeah. scouting maybe, and, and maybe you did your winter right. trip, but what? To, how does this process start your first couple of days? Are you just scouting? Do you jump right in and start hunting? What do you do? 
well, let's just say a, it's a public land place because we don't have any strings attached to that. We can do what we want pretty well most any time of the year. What I try to do is, you know, I will usually get there in early to mid-October and spend another week, possibly five days for sure, hopefully, uh, another little camping trip and put the boot to it. Uh, I will drive, I want to go around the perimeter and learn the access points and figure out, you know, where most of the masses are going to be coming from. Then if I've done my, you know, digital scouting properly, I'm going to know where the most remote areas of this public area are, uh, the most inaccessible. Those are the priorities to me. Uh, that will, that's what separates, you know, the, the doers from the hopers, you know, the ones that hope to kill a good deer. Um, I will find access to these remote areas one way or the other, however it might be. And, um, get that set up and get it figured out, get my, some stand sites prepared, you know, get in there and do the physical scouting and figure out where and how I'm going to hunt. And uh, if access is difficult, like there's some spots I hunt that I have to have a boat, you know, I may use a canoe, uh, whatever. I just get that figured out and get all of the logistics, you know, lined out so that when I come back a few weeks later in early November to do the killing, um, you know, I have ever I dotted and ever T crossed. That's what my October trip will do for me. It'll get me, you know, a lot of time saved and a lot of heartache uh, saved by physically being there and getting myself prepared so that when I come in November, I can spend my time in, you know, some spots that I've already um, got prepared and um, I, I don't have to. You know, I plan on doing, I'm a rut hunter. I'm not a real pre-season rut, pre-rut hunter. Um, I, I don't pattern deer early season well and hunt them on food sources and different things. I know there's guys that do that, but that's a different line. I'm not there. I'm a, I kill 99% of my deer in the rut, and I may not never have even seen the deer, even though it exists. I, I like to hunt what I call kind of rutting corridors where I feel the bucks are going to walk through them at some point during the rut. There may not even be a lot of sign there. I just kind of have learned what these places are and how to, you know, you know, through your digital and foot scouting, you can kind of narrow down. It don't scientists, if you break it down and in every square mile there, there's a lot of factors like access by the people. And if you, if you start marking off the areas that are going to not be any good because they're way too easy to get to and way too many people will be in them and then take what's left and just figure that the deer will be hiding pretty well in that amount of country, then it shouldn't be, you know, rocket science to figure out how they're going to walk around in that country during the rut and get from one area to the other. And what I try to do is pick some uh, either pinch points or types of funnels that when they're moving from one area to the next, they're going to walk through it. And uh, there isn't often a lot of sign in those spots, and there isn't often a lot of hunting in those spots. It may be a fence row across the pasture, you know, between two creek drainages or something. Everybody hunts the two creek drainages. I'm liable to be sitting out there in a tree in the fence row, you know, in that pasture. But you, until you get ready to go out on a limb and kind of do some of that stuff, uh, you really will not know what you're missing, you know, on, on big running whitetails. So when you're actually out there doing that on the ground scouting, uh -huh. if you're not looking for some of the kind of stereotypical type of deer sign that lots of guys think about, what is it specifically that you're looking for when you are scouting? 
for your style? Well, you know, I've said this for years among my friends, and some of them have come to get a grip on it, and I don't even know what it means myself, but I just say that I hunt by what I call feel, just by feel. And I guess it'd be like, you know, maybe you get a photo album of 20, 30, 40 pictures or something, and you thumb through it, and when you're done, you shut it up, and then your mind floats back to what you just looked at through that whole, you know, compilation of photos. It, it'll have a, it'll have a um, theme. Well, when I'm out there, either whether I'm on foot scouting all this country, or whether I'm doing it by Google Earth or topographic map or whatever aerial photos, whatever, I let each one of these factors be a, a photo to me in my mind, and. I'm logging everything that I see down, everything from what people might call, you know, bedding areas or trails or food sources to, you know, open fields versus thick vegetation, creek bottom, coming up against a bluff. I look at the over, over the, basically, I look at the lay of the land is what I try to do and put the whole picture of it together. And then my, I'm just going to, by feel, I'm going to kind of know or get a pretty strong indication of where I can set in the month of November and have rutting bucks passing through as they're traveling around. Because we, you know, we all know that they're going to be up on the move even during the day in November. And no, they're not going to be in 95% of the habitat during the day, but that 5%. Yeah, they're going to be up in it during the day trying to breed a doe or find another doe. And I just kind of look at the whole picture of an area, and after time, I will get a feel for two or three spots that have all the ingredients right to the highest percentage. And then, you know, that's where I will set in November, and it's the best you can do. And from that point on, you got to toss it to fate. It ain't, it ain't a perfect science. There's no perfect formula that can be given to make it work every time. That's why we like it. It's hunting. Just, you know, don't put so much pressure on yourself. Do your best. Go have fun and learn, and you'll get good at it over time. You know, I, didn't, I didn't get where I'm at in 10 years, you know. So you talked about funnels there. One of the main things you're looking uh, for are these travel corridors, these rutting funnels right. or pinch points. And, you know, that, that's a, this is a right. term that we t- as hunters, as white-tail hunters, talk about all the time. And, you right. know, there's the, the very generic type of pinch point where two big pieces of timber yeah. pinch down into a little narrow section. But other than that, right. I think sometimes a lot of guys don't know exactly what to look for when it comes to some of these slightly more subtle pinch points or funnels. Yeah. Can you can you kind of walk us through some more specifics of specific types of terrain or cover or whatever it might be that, that you key in on when trying to find those yeah. those funnels or, or travel quarters? Right. Well I'll tell you one there's so many different facets and it's so many so much dependent upon what type of terrain. But like for instance, I hunt a lot of habitat in Kansas that has a good mix of open and, and wooded. It's you know, let's just call it 50-50. Maybe it's farmland or pastures and then wooded creek bottoms and wooded hills and different things. There's a lot of edge cover. You know, even in a creek bottom that's a long linear creek bottom that's open on both sides, rutting bucks, you know, want to travel that edge. They want to travel the edge, and if if not, possibly more shade out into the open. Um, 
during that peak of the rut now, and I'm not talking about October or December. I'm talking about when they're, you know, on the psycho binge. And uh, so I will often, rather than get down in the creek bottom where most of the sign is and where traditionally, you know, everybody thinks, well, you know, they're going to travel along the creek down there in the cover. Well, that's not always the case at all, especially sometimes for the bigger bucks. They will literally walk right outside the edge of the, you know, the edge of a creek bottom timber along the open. Um, so I will sit out there, you know, in a tree in the edge of the open where I can see a large area because I've learned to prioritize getting my eyes on a rutting buck over necessarily setting in a spot that he is going to walk by within bow range. That's good if you can figure that out and get set that close to where one's going to walk right by. And, and I have places that are that defined. But I would rather be sitting in a general area and get my eye on a rutting buck, even if it's a 200 yards or something, because I'm going to probably call that deer in. Uh, you know, those deer are crazy that time of year, and if they haven't been educated or harassed to death, they're very susceptible to calling. And so I'll sit out on the edge of a uh, tree line instead of down in the cover, and most people don't even look at that edge as a funnel but it is i don't call it a funnel it's more of a a, a corridor they will travel along the edge um, instead of be down there in that thicker cover now they're down in them creek bottoms at night and they're going crazy down in there because that's where you know all the does go down in there to feed but during the day i've watched more big bucks go out and lay in the open even by themselves whether with hot doves or not bed out in the open and then make their way down to that cover in the evening, you know, and people kind of got to break away from, you know, traditional logic on, you know, just hunting the, you know, the standard spots of cover. I've killed more big deer out in the open or se- virtually semi-open than I've ever killed in the thick cover. And there's, there's different habitats. There's places where what I'm saying is not feasible. I'm not, giving you a cover all here. I'm giving you about an instance of one of my more popular types of habitat I hunt. But I've seen places to where I've hunted in Illinois and different places in farm country to where if you could find the thickest, nastiest, woolly booger place to get in, then yeah, that's where you need to be during the middle of the day because the bucks are going to be down in there. They're not going to be laying out in a farm field. There's too much human activity. But everything's relevant, but you know, bottlenecks to me are just sometimes as simple as a change of terrain. Like, um, you know, in Kansas where I hunt, there's a lot of rolling hills, and, and um, there may only be a little swag in one of the ridge lines. you know, a 30-foot deep saddle in a ridge line between two creek ranges. If that has any type of, uh, you know, I, I've even set in homemade ground blinds in those saddles, most people would think you're out of your mind to hunt there, but during the month of November, and especially mid to late November, those bucks will, will jump drainages. They'll jump drainages, and they won't do it traditionally by going all the way down and bending around to the where the next creek comes in the verge at and going up it. They'll jump over. I've killed some of my biggest bucks jumping over uh, open country, and I look for my saddles between you know, drainages that are a perfect spot for a rutting buck to hop over from one creek drainage to another. So there's just a lot of different little things to do with habitat and 
you know, the geography to look at that can become semi-bottleneck type features, you know. Yeah, something something you mentioned just a second ago kind of jumped uh-huh. out at me, and that was the fact that you put, seems like you put a lot of confidence in your ability to call to these deer, which kind of surprised right. me because, I, you know, from some of my experiences and a lot of people I've talked to, a lot of these public land deer are pretty wary when it comes yeah. to calling. Have you had a lot of success with that in specific areas versus others? Is that something that will only work out west versus the east, or what are your thoughts on calling, and how do you go about doing that on, on these public pieces? I won't lie to anybody and tell them that there's not a big difference. Uh, it's just like anything, no matter if it's, you know, fishing or a bird dog. If you're fishing a fishing hole that's been beat to death, you're not going to have nearly as good luck there. I mean, public land in the Midwest and back east, now I don't put a lot of stock in calling because those deer are hammered. And they're educated, and, you know, it just makes common sense it's not going to be as good. Uh you know, you try to do everything you can to get the odds in your favor. And one of those things would be, you know, the average hunter is going to look for as quality a spot as he can find. And that means, you know, somewhere it's got a good number of deer and it's got a lot less people. So a lot of my hunting over the years, I spent a lot of time looking for spots that are, are right. And depending on whether I'm hunting, you know, a public land spot that's out west, it just the deer are fairly uneducated and unbothered versus a private land place you know you may hunt a private land area here in the midwest it doesn't get bothered and the deer are fairly at ease if the deer are fairly unbothered and fairly at ease uneducated calling is deadly on rutting bucks i've had you know like astronomic results calling deer right in to bow range and just you know having them commit suicide from two <laughs> three four hundred yards away but you got to use your head. It's like every aspect of this outing, every aspect of the whole game. If it, you you'll know in your in your heart whether or not or brain whether it's smart. And if you're hunting, you know, like there's some areas I hunt up here in Kansas that are public land that I spend more time avoiding what the people are doing and how they're messing me up than I do actually hunting deer. And I don't do a lot of calling there. I've I've had good success calling deer there, but. Uh, I've had a, I've had some bad experiences too because I you can tell I mean it's like calling an elk out west you know if it's a wilderness elk or an urban elk you know you blow people an urban elk and he'll run the other direction but you go to the wilderness and call one and he'll run in there and pull the arrow out and jump on it for you but uh, <laughs> you know whitetails are uh, kind of basically the smartest of all the species and refined and if you're if you're hunting deer that are fairly you know, unbothered, which you're going to be trying to do because you're going to try to have all, you know, the percentages in your favor, then calling rutting whitetails from around, you know, the 5th of November on can sure enough double your, you know, punch tags. So what specific calling techniques or process do you actually use in these situations? Are you a rattling guy or just grunts or all the above? would love to hear the specifics of exactly what's working for you. Well, I'm about as refined on my calling as uh, it doesn't get. I I don't go into <laughs> science about it, and I don't make no big to-do about it. I, I carry a grunt call, and for the first 20 years of my life, I didn't even use a grunt call. I did it with my own voice, and, you know, just got to where I carry one now. Now, rattling antlers, yeah, I'll carry them. I don't use them very often, and a lot of times when I do use them, I don't try to mimic the big classical 
rutting fight, you know, I do a little time tickling and things. Uh, I, I, I just look at the deer. When I see a rutting buck somewhere, I can look at him for a minute and see where he's going, what he's doing, what's on his mind. And usually I can pretty well decipher, you know, whether or not calling him is even worthwhile. And sometimes I'll judge a rutting buck and just go, that's a waste of time. I'm not going to even blow, you know, at him or, or rattle at him. But I just look each case, you know, and if I think the deer is, you know, susceptible, a lot of the times the older bucks, the, you know, three and a half plus year old bucks, they've been around. They're not dummies. They've been called to and they don't forget it. Uh, you know, if I'm in a out west place, I don't worry about it much because those deer are just far less educated. Uh, they have not, you know, over the generations of time have not been refined down like the eastern whitetails. You know, you honey whitetail in Pennsylvania or New York, and his great-great-great-great-grandpa has been messed with. Uh, it seems like that the dumb ones don't survive, and somehow or another we refine a species down to a more intelligent animal, you know, and I'm not going to tell you that you don't have things you weigh a little better out west with those western whitetails because they haven't been hunted the way the eastern ones have, but I just look at a rutting buck and what's going on and everything considered, and I decide whether to call them or not. I usually try to grunt call the bucks, um, you know, and don't overcall. That's the first thing that'll kind of get them out of sorts, you know, because just get their attention. As soon as you get their attention with it, give them about one more sound so that they know they heard that sound and then leave things alone. If they're going to respond, they're going to respond. If they're not, uh, you know, if they're if they're scared of it or educated about it, then they're, you know, you, you can mess with them for the next five minutes usually. And all you do is just further, you know, educate them. But if they're going to respond in the rut, it's usually a quick, quick deal. Um, and rattling, I'll clack my horns once to get them to stop and look my direction. And then usually I'll just give them a grunt or two and leave it alone. If they want to come, they come and, if I'm calling to the deer, it's because I figure he will come. And, you know, half or better of the ones I call to do respond positively to my calling. Uh, but I don't sit there and call the three or four or five deer a day either. You know, I may go four or five days at a time. I never make a call until I see the right conditions with the right deer, you know. So can you elaborate on that? What specifically are you queuing in on to tell you whether or not it's a buck you should or should not call to? Well, one of the greatest fail safes is if it's a, like a two and a half year old buck, you know, they're just at the age to where they're extremely active in the breeding process, but they're not old enough to be real educated and refined in their senses yet. They, they're aggressive. Uh, they're frustrated. They're looking for trouble or not trouble, but they're looking for just, something and they don't know what they're well they know what they're looking for but they can't get it the bigger bucks keep them run off a frustrated two and a half year old will usually it's hard to not call one in you know now you got to decide if it's something you want to shoot because a lot of people like to call deer just for the fun of it and that's great but it ain't profiting nobody i if you're not going to shoot the deer leave the thing alone you're just educating it you know but uh, when you get up to the three and a half year olds what i look for is like if a buck, a lot of times the buck will be following the doe, and you're just going to have extremely limited success calling the buck off of a doe that he is right in the, you know, uh, presence of. 
if I see an older buck that's on a good stiff walk, he generally what I call trolling, or you know just staggering around in a rut stupor. Uh, yeah, he's a prime handed, especially you know if he's looking like he's traveling, looking for you know another deer. If he's down in the middle of a group of other deer and doing his thing, I'm not probably calling him out of there. But I like to catch them out by their self-covering ground, which is what they're doing a lot when they come by me. Because I'll set out in places that when they go through there, they're usually covering ground to get from point A to point B. And they don't really expect much out there. So when they do hear a deer out there, they will often respond to it. You know, Because a lot of times it's my thought that these bucks, these rutting bucks that are covering that ground through these, say, jump overs or you know, uh, travel corridors, when they hear another buck out there, grunt or something, they will immediately think that there is a buck that's got a hot doe out there because they take those does out of standard habitat during the breeding cycle and take them out into the more open and more off-the-wall country. And when another buck's covering that ground to get from one place to another and he hears a uh, rutting call out there, he will automatically think there's a hot doe close. So he will usually come over there to at least take a look and see if he thinks he can get in on the action, you know? Makes a lot of sense. Yep. So, but, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, I, I'm just saying that, you know, I don't know what level I'm talking at here. I mean, it may, it may not make sense to anybody, but I, to me, hunting is an individual sport, and you got to just refine it down for your own things. And if you got confidence in what you do and you know, put it into practice, you'll be successful. Uh, people that go out there, you know, I've been around them that have hunted for 20 years for whitetails, and they never seem to get it. They never seem to learn, and it seems like they're always trying to, you know, get this secret bit of advice. Uh, and there's a lot of big shot experts out there today that want you to believe that have some secret advice for you that they could make you Houdini bow hunter of whitetails, you know, but that's so that they can market yourself. The bottom line is it's not really like it's a secret, you know. What it is is the fact that you get a brain, you know, get a warm body out there, do what you do, learn what you learn, make mistakes, have successes, get confident in what you're doing, and and you'll, you'll get good at it. Uh, don't go around all your life searching for the hidden formula and, you know, getting some, expecting some guy like me to be able to uh, tell you just exactly how to do it because it's more, it's a personal experience. Bow hunting whitetails is something that there is no magical potion for. Uh, just do it, as Nike says. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. This this is it, it it resonates with me so much, especially you know over the last shoot, it's two or three years now we've been doing this podcast, and I think this is episode right. I think it's episode 112. So we've interviewed uh, you know over 100 different very successful hunters and right. probably the biggest takeaway i've i've gotten is that to your point there is no secret there is no single thing that we need to oh, as soon as we know that or as soon as we have that product or as soon as we've got that perfect thing oh then all of a sudden it's going to change you know there's there's yeah. so many different ways to do this oh i absolutely you know i mean it's man's it's human nature to take anything difficult and master it that's within the human you know, way of doing things. And I, I've been fearful that we're going to master whitetail hunting, but it, it's not going to happen. The closest they've gotten to it, of course, is some of these, you know, managed properties in the Midwest where 
you know, they've refined it down to almost an art killing great big deer. You know, by the time you put enough trail cameras out, put out enough feeders, put out enough food plots, and monitor them everywhere they go and everything they do, you can almost get it down to an art, you know. And But the average Joe isn't interested in all of that. He's interested in learning it on his own and the challenge of it. And so, no, if you're just the average guy, you're never going to taste that that conditioned whitetail hunting success that comes with usually there's a lot of money involved in it but you know who cares let them let them video jockeys have their star status i don't care you know let them put them on a piece of public somewhere and let's see how they do you know that's <laughs> we've we've talked about that before that would be really interesting to get some of these right. you know big night big name people put them on somewhere right. completely new and see yep. how they go about it i think that'd be exactly. very interesting it would, but it won't happen because people that get to that elite status are going to protect themselves, you know. And and I don't worry about it anymore. It used to threaten me. I used to be so bothered by them, you know, TV stars that are killing all these great big bucks consistently. And I even know guys that aren't TV stars or just average guys that have got places like in Iowa and Illinois and places. And every year, I got a guy up here in Kansas that, you know, they're on a massive, massive ranch up there. Him and two buddies have leased it. And, you know, every single year they bow kill a whitetail buck that will be over 170 inches. Wow. That is, that is um, I don't know, what can you say about it? I mean, that's just not really even in the realms of abnormal. It's almost unbelievable to think that a guy could do that. But when you add up what they do every year to get that done and you saw the picture that's painted, it's it's really just what I call phony. It's phony. I mean, they spend thousands upon thousands and thousands of dollars on dumping giant corn piles out and they have leased up tens of thousands of acres for multiple tens of thousands of dollars so that these deer are totally like in a zoo-like atmosphere all year they don't mind walking into a corn pile i mean it's so phony but yes they end up with giant antlers every year but god forgive me but who cares i mean um I I just don't think that's what whitetail hunting and bow hunting is all about. It's not the end, it's the means. And uh, people like you and me and the people who are probably going to listen to this, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And so, you know, we can just get off of that. It's entertainment to watch it on TV, but I don't consider it hunting. I consider it entertainment, you know what I mean? And, yeah, uh, I think that's so a really anyway. important distinction to make. I think a lot of people watch TV and that it unfortunately affects their own expectations of what their hunt's supposed right. to be like. Right. And then you yep. get a lot of very disappointed and frustrated people out there. And yeah. so to your point, oh. it's so important. Yeah. Realize that this is an entertainment. You're not right. seeing all the stuff that goes into it that, you know, right. gets this 20 minute, that 20 right. minute show that's packed with big bucks. Um, right. You know, set expectations based on where you're at, what makes yeah. you happy, what's realistic. Yep. And then I think you're going to yeah. have a lot more fun doing it. Oh, absolutely. Fun has been lost in the thing. I don't know how it come about, but it's evolved to a state of, you know, and this is a real touchy topic. And it's even touchy for me because I, it's just like men hugging each other. You just don't like want to do it, you know. I mean, you do want to do it, but you don't want nobody to see it, you know. It's kind of, it's it's when I talk about the male ego, you know, we don't like to address that. But we all have egos, and a lot of times it's all about, you know, me, the man, the hunter, killing the big thing and having the bragging rights and being the big star, you know. And, and 
you know, you got to evolve. I remember the day when I was in that stage way back there. I mean, I wanted to kill something and take it around and show it off and be admired. I don't run that down. There's nothing wrong with it. But the, ultimately, you're going to evolve, especially if you're trying to become a good white-tailed bow hunter. You're going to evolve way past that one day, and and you're going to get to where it's all about the means, not the end. And uh, so... You know, that's what we're talking about here is how to get some means together and go do it. Have fun. Don't forget fun. You know, even when you go do it on your own, you can get in that binge of trying to be so successful that you put too much pressure on yourself. And that's one of my greatest problems. I, I, I slow, I'm kind of like a, you know, an addict there. I have a problem. If I don't watch myself, I'll fall off the fence, mm-hmm. you know, and, on, and I get on that side of wanting to put pressure on myself, you know, and I just have to stop and have a complete change of heart, mind, and approach, and start over. And that's happened many times in my days. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to stay on the bandwagon of have fun, because whether you're under pressure, whether you're anal, or whether you're just having fun, it's not really going to change what goes on in the field. As a matter of fact, I think people do worse when they're under pressure. You know what I mean? So and, true. Uh, you know, so it's all about bow hunting for whitetails in a fall setting, doing it on your own, learning from the good and the bad of the trip, and, uh, you know, and, and trying to get better at it and just having fun. Yeah, I definitely find myself in a similar camp as you in that I, I'm so, so passionate about it, so right. invested right. in it that I, I put right. so much pressure on myself. And to your point, you know, I'll, I'll be out there and I'm getting yep. angry at myself for yep. the situation yep. and frustrated. And then all of a yep. sudden you have those moments, hopefully you have yep. a moment where you're like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, this is yeah. supposed to be fun. You know, know. why are you doing yeah. all this if you're just going to be right. miserable the whole time? So it, exactly. It, and to your point, I really do think that when you flip that mindset, when you're able to catch yourself and, and yeah. keep that positive attitude, that's when right. you end up being the most ready right. for the moment. Yeah. That's when you're the most you know, prepared and emotionally yeah. and physically capable of pulling off a successful hunt or seeing that yeah. deer and getting the good shot or whatever it might be. So really your mindset can have such yeah. an influence on how an actual hunt oh. plays out. Um, well, just take that to sports. I mean, when you're in a good mindset and you get on the field and you feel in control and happy and you know, everything's going well, you're going to perform at a superior level versus if you go out there browbeating one day, some guy just knocked the fire out of you, and you, you're like, whoa, I, you know, I feel like a little insignificant punk out here. You know, you're not going to perform well, or maybe, you know, the, you hate, you you just had a fight to wife that, <laughs> you know, you're not going to play ball with good that day. So it's like that with hunting. It's, you know, go out there and uh Forget the TV hype and forget all of the, you know, industry hype and go out there and perform at a personal, private level. You'll be you'll be satisfied whatever the results then, you know. Yeah, such such great advice. Uh, now, Eddie, I want to take it back a step to something uh, we were yep. talking about. I want to go back out to this piece of right. public land we're hunting. Right. And one of the things I always think about a lot when I start out on one of these trips on a new piece of property is uh-huh. you know how do I what's my plan for how I'm going to hunt this property? You know sometimes I'm thinking okay I'm going to start in an observation stand and then I'm going to try to learn something and then I'm going to try to dial in from there. Um, one right. of the questions I'm always curious about to hear how other people approach uh-huh. this is you know how long or how do you go about hunting a property? You know are you going to hunt the same spot repeatedly or is it once and if you don't see what you want to see you move on or what's your mindset when it comes to breaking down your actual hunts over the course of a week or two weeks or however long is you that you're in a place? Right. Uh, 
you know, that's that brings back when you ask the different approaches like that. I just my mind just flashes to so many different episodes of my hunts over my life in different places. You know, I've I've had plenty of times where, you know, I went to a place and I I just beat it down during the off season and felt like I had a really strong game plan when I first went in it to it the first time. And I've had instances where those game plans worked out great. I've had instances where I realized that I was backwards. This just, you know, really felt stupid because by the end of the season I'd changed everything, was doing everything different. So once again, there is no perfect rule for it. And other times I've went in and not had a game plan and just, you know, started maybe hunting and working my way in, as you might say, observe, observing and things. I've killed some good bucks out west by doing that it depends on the habitat if you're in a you know habitat where you can do a lot of observation uh, especially if you haven't hunted the place i like that approach start in the early 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 stages of the rut and get that observation done and start working your way in so that by the you know the really high movement time in november you'll already be into the you know the core spots but you know, once again, there ain't no pat answer for it. It's a matter of everything is individual to its own spot. And uh, I, I like to have a game plan when I go somewhere from my digital and all my other scouting. But like this public that I hunt up here in Kansas, um, I went into it the first year. Uh, I, I lost a private place that year. I had everything set up, and it come November the 10th, I went up there to hunt. And the landowner kicked me out. Some guys with money had come along and got it, and I... Here it was November the 10th. I had all my stuff set up to hunt, and I'm at ground zero. I have to pull all that, you know, drive to a place, walk in there public, and start over on November, basically the 11th or 12th. Talk about feeling like a lost pup, you know. I mean, I was, I was intimidated. I mean, here it is already time to get the good stuff done, and I'm back at ground zero. And I went in there, and, you know, I had to make a decision. Am I going to go in here and really, you know, try to learn this place inside out and beat it down and then make plans or am I just going to hunt my way in and it was about 50-50 open uh, thick habitat where I felt I could observe a lot so I just started going out into the to the most remote harder to get to spots and climbing some trees where I could see for good ways in any direction around and trying to observe you know running bucks moving through the habitat and you know does or whatever and I'll be doggone, I called a couple of deer in, you know, from a distance. They were not going to have come by where I was at, but I spotted them and called them in and, you know, got success. They were not huge deer, you know, they were just barely poping young caliber deer. But for a first year, a first week on a place, you know, I mean, I felt good to have just gotten in places to where, you know, there would be 10 cars parked in the parking lot at daylight. And if you went into about 80% of that, available habitat from there you were going to have people problems but there would be 10 or 20 percent of it that if you really could ferret that out you could get away from most all them people well guess where most the deer were going to be i mean them deer are going to figure that out pretty quick wherever the people are coming and going from the activity is going to slowly you know migrate away from that and you know that's just a public land key right there figure out where the people are going to be and spend your time where they're not. Now, that sounds like overly simple, but public land deer are sharp, and there's always nooks and crannies on public places that, for some reason, they're not getting hit as hard as the rest. Those deer figure that out way before you do, and those will be the places you want to be. So, you know, get in there and, 
and if you want to just go all out, go in there and set up and just sit there until, you know, you know what freezes over, fine. Because, you know, during the peak of the rut, you know, if you get thrown into something like I did in the peak of the rut, you ain't got time to make a big game plan and start trying to refine it down. If you're thrown into something like that and you can't leave home till November the 10th and you're going to drive to North South Dakota or somewhere and, and go into this place, then just, you know, if you've done your, you know, preceding uh, work, you know about where you're going to get, get in there and, and, and either go in and basically get it a bunch and stay all day in a tree and, you know, we don't, none of us like to rely on luck. We like to figure it out and kill them on our own. But, hey, if you don't have any luck uh, and won't rely on it, which I used to not, I used to say, if I kill one by luck, I'm not even going to count it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, you know, kind of know what I was doing and figure I had a good hand in it. But if I kill them by luck or by skill nowadays, they're still bow-hunted whitetails and, and and I'm still appreciative of them. So don't be bashful to get into an area and stay all day and call ever so often. And don't be bashful to sit out on the edges and hunt your way in. Whatever makes you happy. Uh, and the most, hey, there's certain formulas for it that can't be, you know, overlooked. Once you do everything you can do, then nothing more than sheer time in the field is the greatest odds upper. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, from about November the 10th on, I can't tell a person one thing better than more time in the field to have better success. That's the number one odds increasing factor. And very few people got the wherewithal to set all day, you know. Uh, so you're an all-day hunter during the rut? I try to be. I Once again, it's case-specific, but I try to have places that I can go to and set all day. Uh, there's places that's not good for it, and if you're, you know, halfway – an outdoorsman, you'll know when it's not really common sense. You're not going to set, you know, right out beside the edge of a fairly accessible farm field probably all day long. You're going to go back in there off down in the river bottom in the briar thicket down there and set. But uh, out west, it's a different matter. You know, there's lots of places that are excellent for all-day setting because those deer can move freely all day. But, yeah, I, I set all day uh, most of the time, and... I've killed, I'm going to say, one out of every three, probably, of my better bucks during a time between 10 in the morning and 2 in the evening. Wow. Do you have any advice for people that struggle staying out for that those long hours? Any advice for just handling a full day sit? Yeah. The best thing, you know, it, of course, it varies with age, and I'm a, an authority on that because I've been doing this for 30 years, and so I've watched myself change, but... You know, when I was younger, in my 20s and 30s, it wasn't that hard for me to adapt to all-day setting. I was mentally and physically psycho, and uh, it didn't get too tough for me. As I've gotten older, it's tougher. But the main thing I do nowadays to make it easier on myself is, well, of course, this is no, a no-brainer. Number one, have a place you feel confident in setting all day. If your mind ain't with you, if you're setting somewhere thinking you're wasting your time, you won't stay hooked. So, so number one, you know, number one, get in a spot that you definitely feel a buck can come walking by in the middle of the day. That's number one. Number two, you know, take the time that if you if you can ahead of time, and it's not always possible, but get in there and, and get it set up properly. Get it to where you feel happy hunting it. In other words, don't get in there and jump up in a tree that you can't shoot your bow 20 yards out of in any direction and you can't see and you're it just mentally beats you down. Get in there maybe in off-season, clean it out a little bit and get things kind of where you, 
you're going to sit in a pleasant spot, and you're going to be able to see things happening and get an extremely comfortable tree stand. As you get older, that's more important. You know, some of these, I put up some stands that are more like a little loungers, you know, and <laughs> I mean, it's kind of embarrassing compared to what I used to <laughs> I used to set 14 hours on a little homemade thing that was, I mean, you couldn't even hardly know, barely have enough room for your feet to stand up on, and your butt was sitting on a little six-inch round circle. But that's when I was tough and dumb, you know. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, nowadays, get a really comfortable stand and get in a good spot and take a good lunch, you know. Here's my thought. I'd rather be caught in that tree stand goofing around once in a while trying to eat my lunch than be at home and never even be out hunting. Uh, I mean, for every time you get caught moving or doing something in the middle of the day and you scare your deer off, there's going to be two or three other times you don't get caught and you're going to kill that deer. So just play the percentages, you know. Take you a good lunch. Take you a book if you want. Uh, a lot of, you know, we're high tech nowadays. Everybody sits out there with their phones and messes with them all day, which here's my advice for that. <laughs> you're going to sit out there and play with electronics all day. Take up golf, okay? <laughs> Get out of the woods and quit messing a good hunt up for me, okay? But anyway, that's another line of thinking. But, you know, do something to have a good time while you're sitting there and be comfortable. Dress in layers and dress comfortably because sitting in a stand wallowing around all day can get uncomfortable. You know, don't get bound up in clothing that's, you know, really uncomfortable. I actually even use a, in the colder weather, I use a thing called a heater body suit rather then layer up real, real thick and bulky with clothing because it gets uncomfortable. I'll sit in that heater body suit and not have very much on underneath it, you know, and uh, I can move around inside of it. Not really, you know, it's not visible to the outside, you know. So, you know, just use common sense tactics on all day sets and whatever makes you happy and comfortable, that's what you got to learn. And one last thing, you probably ought to start trying a few all dayers about a week or 10 days before you're ready to really, really get serious about it because it's amazing how after you do it for a little while, like maybe you sit all day, you know, three or four days out of one week, and then the next week you might might go five or six days. It's amazing how you'll work into it not being nearly as bad. You toughen up to it, you know. It's so, definitely, definitely an acquired taste. Different. It is. It's it's. You know, it's not fun. It literally, I've never probably set a 14-hour set that I called fun. <laughs> but, you know, if we're serious whitetail bow hunters, there's a point where you got to balance the fun versus productivity. And when it gets to be miserable, no, I'm going to say, you know, go play around the golf or go home and eat and watch football. But if you can keep it at a, you know, tolerable level and be productive, then you know, you got to sacrifice because if it was easy, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, you know, so. Oh, yeah. It, it can be a grind, but it's definitely one can. of those things that um, yep. I always talk about these different types of fun. You know, there's type one fun, which is, you know, playing golf, drinking a beer, right. watching watching a football game. But then type two right. fun is yeah. that it's a challenge in the moment. You know, it can be yep. whether it be yep. hiking up a mountain with a bull right. on your back or sitting right. all day. But once oh, yeah. you get through it, it's a great story. You're so glad you did it, and it's uh -huh. fun looking back on. I think those all-day sits, especially the ones where you see a nice buck or you kill one or you have some kind of cool experience, that is a lot of fun once you're able to, to push through and yeah. actually do it. Yeah, I hear a couple of years ago I sat quite long and hard on my public place up in Kansas, and I, 
I'd passed up a number of, you know, good deer, nothing over 125 or 30 inches. But finally, it was getting late in the season there. I mean, it was getting close to Thanksgiving. And, you know, I'm like, dang, I got to get, I got to take this to another level, you know. So I got my body suit and my lunch. And I'd, I had been practicing the old man way of hunting, which is, you know, a break during the middle of the day. And uh, I thought, well, you know, how bad do I want to get a deer, you know? And I'm like, well, I still want one bad enough, so I'm going to do it. And I went out there and got, you know, on an all-day set, and sure enough, 11.45, you know, 15 minutes till noon, here comes the deer for me that I want, you know, and I kill it basically right up noon. And, you know, it was on public land, heavily, heavily hunted public land, and I'm going to bet that nine out of every ten of them people that had been there that morning hunting were probably not there then, you know, and that deer probably, who knows, it might have got to run out of some other more uh, frontal habitat, and I was back in the back in a hard-to-access place, and, I mean, use your brain. Once again, use the brain God gave you. I mean, where do you want to be in the middle of the day? You want to be back in the places where the deer are going to be hiding out, right? You know, I mean... When you got public land and people get up roaming around at 9 or 10 in the morning and then they're coming back in at 2 in the evening, pretty safe bet you want to be back in there where the deer are going to be avoiding that at, you know. But, you know, it just is a matter of, I guess, slowly but surely getting the wherewithal to put it all together, you know. And, and it does, hey, for every perfect example like I just gave, it, it doesn't work that way uh, one, once out of what? Ten times, you know. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's a whole lot of uh, more mistakes and failures than oh. uh, than the few successes, but uh, it's all worth it, right? When it does come together. That's it. And to me, it's always boiled down about, about mental outlook. I mean, it's perspective. And the really really successful whitetail bow hunters or western bow hunters, whatever. To me, they have one thing in common: mental. I don't know what the word would be. Desire, I guess. Uh, want to. Perspective is is success the pain is never not worth the gain they're going to put out what they got to put it's a labor of love all those old things it applies to the the people that are diligently successful i've been that way it's just who i am i don't put on a face about it Uh, i'm not saying i'm any better or any worse i'm just a human being but i love bow hunting and i like to try to be successful and i don't know why but that's the way i'm wired you know I uh, I can definitely relate. I uh, I think we have similar wiring when it comes to that. Yeah. Now you talked a little bit ago about uh, you know having a comfortable stand for these all day sits, and it got me thinking about your stand right. setups. You know, it sounds like you're moving around a lot, or you're setting up stands right. during a hunt on public land. You know, what right. types of stands or what's your stand setup look like that you use for these DIY public public land hunts? Right. I kind of got two levels of it. I got some stands that are very very lightweight that I will strap on my backpack and of course you're going to develop a system for if you're running and gunning I call it you know living off your back in other words if you're walking into areas and scouting them and and maybe just throwing stands up and getting in them on the spur of the moment you you got to work on that you got to work a system out you know you got to have all the support gear you got to be able to get it up quickly and quietly I mean I've spent many hours just setting up a system for running and gunning where i take stands around and walk into new spots still hunting almost 
and I will see something that just makes hair stand up on my neck maybe and go, okay, I'm in that tree right there. And, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm up that tree. I try to not even make a sound getting that stand up that a deer could hear, you know, 100 yards away. And I've, I've killed a lot of deer like that, just running and gunning, just popping stands up, you know. Uh, you can call it a hunt-in-as-you-go approach. You know, it's similar to it. You know, I wasn't really planning on killing one that first set in that spot, but it'll happen more times. And there's a lot to be said for a first hunt. I don't know what it is about whitetails, but a first hunt is worth a lot. You know, every time you hunt in a spot thereafter, you're not up in your odds. Usually you're down in them, especially if you understand too much. But then there's the other approach where I have a heavier, bigger lounger-type stand, and it has a receiver on it that you can put on the tree to where you hang the stand. So, you know, if I'm on public land, I have a lot of problems with people. I've got to be careful because people will not only, I've had stands stolen, but I've actually come to get in them and had guys sitting in them. Oh, and, I mean, all the stuff that you can imagine, I've been through it, and, and I'm not real good at dealing with that stuff so i don't want to deal with it because i'm not real diplomatic and i don't need to be getting in them i'm not good at getting in them situations so i try to avoid them so look at the situation if you're going to put a stand up that's big and comfortable and you're going to try to hunt it quite a bit you just got to decide if it's something you can get away with here at this spot at this time i do leave some of my stands like that up for periods of time but some of them I'll take down each time and carry them out with me. I'll leave the receiver in the steps or something because a big stand like that will catch somebody's eye, you know, and uh, you're setting yourself up for some problems on public land by going in and thinking that you can just set up a bunch of stands and leave them and do your thing because they'll work that way. <laughs> yeah. Do you do much, you know, uh, shooting lane clearing on a run and gun hunt like that, or is that, you know, too much of a disturbance and you just kind of deal with what you have? I leave it alone on those type hunts. That's always a dilemma for me because I don't like climbing up somewhere and then realizing, you know, you get up there 10 minutes later and you get set and you're looking around you and you're going, boy, this is dumb. You know, this is D-U-M dumb because I can't <laughs> shoot nothing if it comes in here, you know. But really, over the years, I've done it both ways. You know, I've, I, I've done everything between just leaving it everything alone and getting up there and feeling like I can't shoot nothing to maybe doing a little bit of trimming to just help myself a little bit plumb to just getting psycho and going okay I'm I'm fixing this up <laughs> and get just you know spend a 30 minute session of raping and pillaging and then get back my tree I've done it all the ways and it always seems to me that it's worked out better if I'm running and gunning to leave things alone and just get up there do the best I can to be in a spot where I can shoot the best I can because you're better off to have the deer in there and then worry about how you're going to get it killed than to get a way to kill it and not have it in there. Um, and white tails, you know as well as I, are super sensitive. And anytime you do a big to-do around the tree, um, you've just about done away with your running gun tactic to begin with. You know, you've uh, a running buck, yeah, that's coming from a half a mile away. He can still stumble by there. But chances are he may not, because if you've run all the local does off with your trimming and your banging and going and doing, it's funny how they just don't seem to wonder by where there ain't no does, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, anyway, I, on run and gun, I usually leave things alone. I'll try to, you know, I'll stand there for maybe a minute or two and stare at six, eight, ten trees right here, and I'll try to make an educated decision on the best one to get in to put myself in the best position, and that means, you know, where, the, where do I expect most of these deer may come from? 
where's the best place for my wind to be according to what tree I'm going to get in and what tree can I possibly shoot out of the best over this area that I want to look at, you know. So all those, all those things are just factors that are unique to each scenario. But I'll climb up there usually, and, and you know, I might trim a little thing or two right there where the stand's at real quietly, but I don't do much opening up on running gun hunts. Yeah. Like you said, sometimes it's not worth the risk of ruining right. the chances of any potential encounter. So, right, so, right. So you start talking about the shot, you know, getting to that point where you can actually get a shot. And that brought me back right. to those original four categories that, uh, right. that I brought up at the beginning. And the final right. of those four categories that you'd mentioned in your article was about uh-huh. that moment of sealing the deal, the final steps right. to actually seal that deal. So I got to right. believe over all the years you've been bow hunting, you've learned some things about how to best make sure you're ready and, and, and execute on that final moment when that buck shows up in your shooting lane or is coming in. Could you share with us maybe some of those greatest lessons learned or maybe something now yeah. that you see as that big turning point for you that helped you seal the deal? Yeah. Well, you know, this isn't rocket science, and everybody pretty well knows it and probably heard it hashed out to the end of the earth. But for me, I plainly remember in my hunting, bow hunting life, what was the big changer for me. Now, it didn't it didn't make me go from, you know, totally inadequate to totally perfect, but it was a big game changer. It made me go from, you know, rarely successful to mainly successful, and that was the ability to control buck fever because I've always been a person that, you know, I turn and see a big white-tailed buck coming to me. I, I would go into a sort of automatic pilot, mental psycho mode of mm-hmm. excitement well buck fever is a debilitating thing it's debilitating and i had it for years and it costs me dearly as a matter of fact i can't stand to talk about it because if i had <laughs> not had it some of the deer that i should have killed back in my early days would have been game changers for me because my god i've run into some of the biggest ones and should have killed them back then but i didn't because i'd get too excited your mind goes into kind of a fog. I call it automatic pilot mode, yeah, and you're just, yeah. you know, you're functioning out of a subconscious set of uh, movements. Well, that's not going to work because if you can't keep your right mind and assess the situation that's unfolding and react accordingly, you're going to blow it most of the time, and that's what buck fever does for you. It causes you to not think through and blow it. So getting past buck fever. Now, how to get past it? I've been asked that a million times, and I've dealt with it with my wife for 14 years now. She is a world-class buck fever psycho woman. (laughs) And I've done everything on the earth, on the earth, that I can think of to get her past it. And she's no farther past it than the day she started. I don't know that there is any solution other than maybe getting drunk before you go get in your tree. (laughs) But I'm just... I'm just saying, take a, take a, dep- a um, sleeping pill or something, but get past it one way or the other. Go out and start shooting does, I'd say. Forget big buck hunting. Go out and shoot does until you think killing deer with a bow is not fun anymore. Maybe that'll get you past it. Just do something to get past buck fever because that's the big obstacle. And then after that, what I've refined down over the years is just the fact that you know, you just learn how to set up everything that you're doing, from the tree stand to your gear to your mental. You know, I mean, 
I said earlier that, you know, you maybe take a book and read it or blah, blah, blah on all day sets. Well, that's fine if you got to, because here's my opinion. You're better sitting there reading a book than to not be sitting there reading a book. Now, what I mean by that is I, I don't want to, I don't sit and read a book because I'm just sure that a buck's going to walk up on me before I can get ready. You know what I mean? And that's why all day sets are so hard on me because I make myself sit there scanning the country like an eagle all day and it just wears you out, you know. But just be sensible, you know, on what you're going to do in the moment of truth, you know. Uh, and always remember, here's the biggest thing that gets people buck fever. They don't really prepare for the unexpected. In their mind, they have kind of fantasized about this big buck's going to walk in right over there and there he'll be in and blah, blah. But it don't work that way. They always do something different. They come from behind you. You don't know they're there till they're under you or they come a chasing a doe by you. Nothing goes as you kind of picture in your fantasy mind, so that throws you into automatic panic mode, you know. Don't panic. That's the worst thing. That's what causes buck fever. Keep a level head, and what I try to tell people is this. Just picture in your mind that you're nothing but a casual nature observer until you've killed a deer. Until the moment that you have shot that deer and harvested it with a bow, you might as well have just been out there with a camera sitting there taking pictures because you really ain't accomplished nothing. If that buck comes in there and freaks you out and gets away, you're going to go home and tell people about it. Nobody's going to care about it. Nobody saw it. You ain't got no proof of it. You might as well just not even tell it. But if you take it home with you and eat it and put the antlers on your wall and tell a story about it, people are going to make note because if you don't stay calm, you blow it. You're just a nature observer, so don't get excited. There's nothing exciting about nature observing. What's exciting is walking up and wrapping your hands around the rack when he's laying there. So try to just condition your mind to the fact that you're not really doing nothing uh, worth being excited about until you have arrowed the buck. Then you can let your heart rate go through the roof because you can go, oh, I just did it, you know, and so... I don't know if it's just a mental game, but anymore when I'm sitting there and a big deer shows up, of course that first one second of me wants to leap through the roof, you know. But then I, uh, I just immediately go, you know, Claypool, you know, you gotta, you gotta just kind of get this done, you know. <laughs> People think that you know what you're doing, <laughs> <laughs> so don't disappoint him. Just kind of mm-hmm. act like you, act like you know what you're doing, and. You know, yeah, that's a 160-incher there, but, you know, so what? He ain't going to Oklahoma with you if you don't follow through, and I just stay calm. And um, I lost the largest buck of my life here not, not too many years ago because I thought I was completely over buck fever, and I, I found out that I was not. And it attacked me in a debilitating way and cost me the largest antler buck of my life and this buck was 100% dead. He should. There's no way he should got away. Can, so it can can still happen. Can you tell us that story, Eddie? Yeah, real quickly. I mean, I was sitting with my wife one evening up in Kansas, and I I got her uh, a tag for doe, and this was back before you had to get a buck tag to get a doe. In the earlier days, you could just get a doe tag. So I was trying to teach her to bow hunt, and she was just wanting to kill a deer. So we had a bow tag, a doe tag, and we sitting there, and I was like. I watched her shoot a doe and everything well, toward evening. Nothing had come by, and we were freezing, and we were going to get down, and it was almost you know, time to get down, probably 10 minutes before time to get down. And I said, well, 
I said, give me just a second. I got my grunt call out, made a couple of quick grunts, and up through the woods up there out of sight, I heard one just do that roar. The, I mean, that roar back, you know, that mm-hmm. grunt that sounds like unbelievable, you know. And I said, holy smokes. I turned around to her, and I said, did you hear that? And she said, yeah. She said, what was that? And I said, that was a buck. And I said, probably a really big one. And I'm kind of turned around talking to her. She's sitting behind me on the back side of the tree, and I hear something. And I turn around, and here comes a behemoth thing <laughs> trotting right up to me. Just And I didn't even have a mentality of even being bow hunting that evening. I had took my bow to the tree, but I had done something I'd never done in my hunting life that I know of. I had hung that bow up without an arrow on the string, oh, and I no. didn't even realize I did not realize I had done that. And when I turned and see this thing coming, it's instantaneous giant. So anyway, I didn't. I looked. I didn't have an arrow on my bow, and I had. I, I just don't do that. But I did it that day because I wasn't even hunting. And by the time I grabbed my bow and tried to pull an arrow and knock it, the buck was running literally up in under the tree stem. And I went ahead and got myself ready, and I kind of turned around and I looked, and he was standing maybe 12 yards in front of the tree which would be behind me in front of the wife standing there quartering away just looking around for whatever he'd heard and uh by the time i got slowly turned and drawn on him he got nervous and he trotted right back off the way he'd come from and disappeared back up in the woods i got back on the grunt call and here he come again coming right back down there and i got the full draw on him and he got to within about 30 yards of me on this second approach but he was so cautious he was on full alert, and he was hanging to the thick cover, and he never gave me a shot. I had him standing there at 30 yards and had to just let him walk away. And um, to make a long story short, a little bit later, the Kansas gun season opened, and the landowner there killed that buck, and he was 190-inch typical. And uh, wow. so that was basically my one-in-a-lifetime chance. And when he come up running up on me like that, I remember going into his just this main straight line brainwave activity. I had no thought process. (laughs) And uh, I, it was like a really out of body experience because I was totally unprepared and I let it really freak me out. If I had kept my head, I did some things wrong, you know, that I won't go through, but I didn't think things through. I could have got that deer killed. And I still have a hole up here on my wall where he would have been. I, I have a place up here where I, I left an empty spot in all of my whitetail mounts for that one in a lifetimer, you know. And uh, <laughs> he was headed. He was headed for that that day, but buck fever got me, and uh, another big, another big, another big one that got away. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's that's a pretty good story for us to end this one on because I think it's a great example okay. of that even the most successful, you know, one of the most successful bow hunters out there. We are still all just human beings. We are still fallible. We make mistakes and, uh, nobody, nobody out there should feel bad when things don't go right because, uh, it happens to us all. Right. That's very true. Have fun, be happy and, uh, take it as it comes. And if you do, you'll end up better at the end of the day than trying to become a expert. (laughs) So, so true. So, so Eddie, if, If our listeners want to hear more of your stories, read some more of your work, where should they go to find that? Well, currently I'm on staff for Peterson's Bow Hunting, and I kind of keep my work with them. Uh, I'm not freelancing anymore, so I don't spread it around over many of the other archery magazines. I haven't got dedicated enough to do any books yet. Maybe that will come in the future, but 
currently I just say, you know, look for me at Peterson's Bow Hunting or hunt me up on Facebook if they want. I love to have bow hunting friends and uh we'll all we'll compare notes. Sounds good. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Eddie. It's been great being able to yeah. compare some notes with you and uh I I've just really enjoyed this conversation. So thanks so much for joining us. Likewise, uh, anytime, and God bless, and have have good success, whether you fill a tag or not, you know. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Eddie. Good luck this season, too. And with that, we're going to call it a show. I don't know about you guys, but after this chat, I am stoked to head out on a bow hunting adventure of my own. Now, real quick before we go, if you've not left a rating or review for this podcast on iTunes yet, it would be so awesome if you could do that. It's a huge help just takes a minute so thank you in advance for taking a look and giving us a review also we need to give a big thank you to sick gear trophy ridge bear archery redneck blinds huntera maps ozonics carbon express maven optics and the whitetail institute of north america for supporting this podcast and wiredhunt.com and finally thank you all for tuning in today i hope you enjoyed this one i hope it inspired you a little bit to get out there and try something new and i hope you'll stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge-to-edge reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.